Oh boy, oh boy. Bruce Boudreaux is looking for his second straight win to start his Canucks tenure, and it's all happening off the ice, too. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host. He's firing off some fire tweets as we speak. It's Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who, of course, covers the team for The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders. From Avenue Machinery, visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drantz, you're going to be able to catch your breath here? Yeah, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I, I will. I, at the end of the day, I, I get a little fired up sometimes on, on the old Twitter machine. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? That's, that's, that's what, what Connects Twitter for. is for. Yeah, that's exactly. what it's there for. Exactly. To vent. Um, but, you know, well, let's get into it. We'll get into it. It's like dispatches from year nine of the of the Mike Gillis Wars in Vancouver as the Canucks launch a search for a new head of hockey operations. I just love because if anybody thought that the dismissal of Jim Benning as Canucks general manager would end the... Benning versus Gillis <laughs> debate. <laughs> oh no, no, it's, no! It's just stoked it. It's firing backed up, man. You know, yeah, and well, and and I mean, I don't think it was the Benning's dismissal that stoked it. I think it's reports from the likes of my colleague at the Athletic, Pierre LeBrun, linking Mike Gillis, but also his lieutenant Lawrence Gilman to potentially the job in Vancouver, and and Gilman was also linked explicitly by. LeBron to the job yep. opening in Chicago, potentially. So, uh, you know, that causes a lot of discussion. <laughs> and, and we'll get into it in the second half. But right yeah. now, right now, I think what matters the most for Canucks fans is the feeling of optimism. The smiliest group of smilers that ever smiled. <laughs> Your Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> Frowns turned upside down under Bruce Boudreaux's yeah, leadership. And another uh, another legendary Bruce Boudreaux media appearance. He's having fun. He's making people laugh. La- that was yesterday after their practice. <laughs> people no- other than me. Let's let's <laughs> yes. re- let's note this. Yes. It's it's not just me. It's it's a laugh track though. If you listen like you listen oh, to those availability. It's like a comedy set. <laughs> it's like it's like uh, it's you know Good job, C-Mac, installing an applause light in the Norm Jewison media room because that's what it feels like. Yeah, no, he's up there. He's he's having fun. He's having the time of his life. I will right never now. criticize a reporter for laughing at a coach's joke. <laughs> uh, Six p.m. puck drop tonight against the Boston Bruins at Rogers Arena. So note the earlier start time: six p.m., not seven. Of course, pregame coverage kicking off at four with the guys on the People Show. Uh, Satin Bick have your intermission and post-game analysis as well. As we said, no morning skate, so we'll have to wait and see later in the day if there are going to be any lineup tweaks, uh, any roster tweaks. We won't hear from Bruce Boudreaux until about 3.30 as well today. And, you know, this is an interesting one because Boudreaux himself in that game, his debut game against the Kings, which, of course, they win 4 nothing. he said, you know, specifically with the penalty kill and the more aggressive penalty kill, hey, we caught people by surprise a little bit. We caught the Kings by surprise with how we changed things, right? So some of the element of surprise has been taken away, specifically on the penalty kill, but you would expect that we may, might see some new wrinkles from Boudreaux in his second game behind the bench. And I'm specifically curious to see, you know, this is kind of an interesting uh, control experiment here because we just saw what the Canucks looked like against the Bruins in the late stages of the Travis Green era, right? That was... 10 days ago where they played that game in Boston. They played all right. They lost at the end because Brad Marchand and David Pasternak, you know, showed up and made big plays. The Canucks stars did They are didn't. who they are, and yes. the Canucks are who they are. But we just saw what 
Travis Green in the late stages of his career with the Canucks looks like coaching against coaching the Canucks against the Bruins. And now we get a chance to see, okay, Bruce Boudreaux early in his tenure, what that looks like. I'm curious to see if it looks different at all tonight. If there's anything tangible we can point to and say, okay, you know, now though it's not, you know, it's not the Kings on the second half of a back-to-back. It's a team we just saw them play. What's different? What what's new here with Boudreaux behind the bench? So I had a fan in my Twitter mentions tell me that the Canucks' performance against the Kings was their best five-on-five performance in four years. Four years? Four years. Wow. And, and you know, I'm so literal sometimes, Jamie. Like, I'm so literal sometimes that I was like, I wonder if it is. Like, I wonder where it stacks up. So I went and looked, and it is actually about their ninth best five-on-five performance, uh, you know, as I rate it, based on a combination of expected goals and, and course goals. four yeah. and, and shots for, and the fact that they led, like they led the whole game and still controlled play, which matters to me. Like, you know, yeah, you, you're not racking up the Corsi when you're down two goals exactly. in the third period. Yeah. So, you know, I'd rank it as a top 10 five on five game for the Canucks from the last uh, 10 years. Pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, interestingly, though, if I was to tell you that, would you say that the impact on the Canucks had been bigger offensively or defensively? Instinctively, just based on your reaction to the game on Monday night. Well, I guess instinctively it would be offensively. Right, but yes. it wasn't, right? Yeah. They, I mean, it was like the 30th best offensive game yes. they'd had. It was like a 7th best defensively, and that's sort of what what created the good rating. Um, just an interesting just an interesting look at like the, the game one change. Obviously, look, everyone loves the optimism of a coaching change. Right, the especially when you bring in a likable grandfather yep. figure like like Bruce Boudreaux, like everyone wants this guy to succeed. He's done it in other places. The roster or the record, anyway, that he took over is so similar to the one that he took over in Washington. He's been a turnaround specialist in the past. I get all the reason for optimism. We're not going to see or know or have any feel for what the Boudreaux effect really is for 10 to 15 games. And there were a lot of things about this Canucks season that were going to regress positively over the long haul anyway. Um, And and that now will probably be credited to Boudreaux getting like Besser going when Besser was going to regress one way or another. Um, You know, that said, clearly he looks re-energized and there's no denying that that'll have an impact too. Uh, So... You know, all of that said, all of that said, there's a lot to like about what we've seen from Boudreaux in game one. There's a lot to like about his answers to the media yesterday. And I thought his most interesting answer yesterday actually was about his philosophy. Because I brought up to him Scott Walker, the Scott Walker hire, and noted to him that Walker's teams in Guelph, and I was Ontario-based when Scott Walker was coaching the Guelph Storm, and they had Jason Dickinson, but they had a ton of other NHL players too, Brock McGinn and on and on. And they were like the highest octane, most thrilling offensive team in the OHL. Like they were must-watch hockey. If you were a hockey fan, if you spent a lot of time out in rinks in Ontario in the in the mid-teens, um, the Guelph Storm were your favorite team to watch, I promise you. And so, you know, seeing or hearing Bruce's answer, he said, you know, it's about pressure. Like that's philosophically where we sort of blend or come together or agree or have like a big picture agreement on how to approach the game. We've already seen that implemented on the penalty kill. I think we've already seen parts of it implemented on the four check. And Boudreaux went on to talk about like, why do we cede our zone to anyone ever? Like our first option should be to stop teams in the offensive end and then work our way back to stopping them in the defensive end. Now, 
I think that's going to be a problem over the long haul with this roster, just because I don't really trust this defense to get back to make rush chances harder to come by. I actually think we saw that in the Kings game. The Kings generated a fair bit on the counter, and they're not even built to do that. So we'll see how this evolves, considering the makeup of the roster that Boudreaux has inherited. But certainly we've seen some really positive signs, and it'll be fascinating to see how it translates against the Bruins tonight at Rogers Arena. The pressure answer was really interesting, too, because he also talked, and I think it was maybe in response to another question you asked about if he's had a chance to get his hand on some of the data that the team produces uh, for the coaching staff, right? And he talked about you know, specifically some of the advanced stats that he finds useful and some that he doesn't. And I thought that was a really illuminating answer because, you know, the things he said aren't useful. I think he's correct, right? Like, oh, this player skated, you know, reached a top speed of X miles per hour. This player skated uh, this distance in the game. Okay, that doesn't really tell you a whole lot. That might be neat for a TV broadcast, but it's not necessarily useful information. But the information that he highlighted that he thinks is really important, the example he gave was, you know, how often do you protect the blue line when you have a chance to stop an entry? How how often do you gain the blue line with control when you have mm-hmm. a chance for a controlled entry? Those are really important metrics, and I think that ties into what he's saying. Don't just give the other team your blue line, right? Try to stop them, at least make them give up control of the puck. And I thought it's interesting because we're in a spot now with Boudreaux where – It's more about the philosophy than it is the results, right? Because everyone understands, you know, obviously he didn't have any input in building this roster together. I think everyone understands this is a flawed roster. But what you want to see is, does he have philosophies that can have success, you know, potentially in the future when the Canucks roster is overall in a better situation? I think his answer about pressure, some of the things he said about the forecheck early on, there's a, there's reason, and it, you know nobody needs to look that hard in this specific moment to find reasons to be optimistic, but I think those are some pretty encouraging answers that we've heard from Bruce Brujo so far about you know how he wants this Canucks team to look and how he wants this Canucks team to play. Absolutely. Well, yeah, no, I, I think he's... I think the, the part that I've, I've liked so far is what we've seen on the ice has matched what he said. You know, I think there's a... I think there's something that... There's an appeal to consistency. There's an appeal to straightforward communication, especially coming out of the, you know, era of communication issues, right? That the yep. Canucks have just turned the page on. So, you know, Boudreaux's openness, right? The 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 personable style, um, you know, it, it it works. Like it works right now because it feels like such a relief, you know, from. Travis Green's cagey style and Jim Benning's sort of stumbling style, right? It, and I think that's a big part of this. That's like the contrast is so sharp. And and again, that's what we've been talking about with Boudreaux, right? If you were going to change coaches, bringing the polar opposite. Yes, get a major contrast. A major contrast is is so necessary. Like you cannot replace – people think that you can replace like a, a coach in the, in the Travis Green mold – with like a, a Torts or a Babcock in season, right. you never get the bounce. You never get the bounce with a taskmaster coach in season. That you that guy needs a training camp. That guy needs a training camp to install what he wants. It's the player's coach that gets the bounce in season, typically speaking. Uh, Daryl Sutter's a bit of an exception in Calgary because he got the bounce right away in form, but he didn't in results, right? He yep. didn't in results last season. And now look at them after he had a full training camp, and he's more of a, the taskmaster style too. So... 
it's a it's a it was a good hire for a lot of reasons and I think one of the reasons that we're seeing play out in front of us is the communication style is the personality and I think you're feeling that energy too from the players on the bench uh, on the ice and we'll see if that continues against a pretty good Boston team that's also because we cannot fail to bring this up in the Vancouver market getting Brad Marchand back there you go right Brad Mar- hey we're discussing Gillis and Marchand welcome to 11 years oh, ago boy. oh boy <laughs> um but Matt Marchand is back following his slew foot suspension on Oliver Ekman Larson and I'm sure Canucks fans will greet him warmly yes. at Rogers Arena. Yeah, it could be another lively atmosphere, actually, right? Should like be. set game two of the Boudreaux era, the Bruins are in town, Marshawn making his it, return. Game twenty four of the twenty eleven Stanley yes. Cup final. A pivotal you know what they say. You win game twenty four. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're gonna win the series. You typically win. Yeah. Typically you win the series. <laughs> but okay, the here's never the ending series. We're uh, it never ended. <laughs> it is never it will never end. No. Hey, 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 we're still talking about Mike Gillis. So <laughs> as long as we're talking about Mike Gillis, as the Stanley as... Cup finals isn't over. Yeah, Don't as worry. long as those scars still linger for on <laughs> yes. the psyche of this market. But the interesting thing is obviously there's so much optimism with Boudreaux in just from as you said, the communication, the style he wants to play, all of that, I still think actual expectations in terms of results are very low. We do get people texting in, and 650-650, keep your text coming to the Dunbar Lumber text line. We do get people texting in saying, hey, if they can do you know this in the month of December, maybe they get back into the playoff race. But I think overall, the expectations for any sort of miracle turnaround are appropriately low. No one is really necessarily expecting that. To happen, But I do think that raises the interesting question of, okay, if we don't, if, if the mandate for Bruce Boudreaux is not to, you know, lead this team on an incredible run to playoff contention, what qualifies as a success for this team and for Boudreaux as a coach specifically for the remainder of the season? Because this isn't, you know, oh, you know, the team fell out of the playoff race in March and we got an interim coach for the final 20 games of the season and he's just a caretaker to play out the string. This is a big chunk of the season left for this team to manage and for Bruce Boudreaux to manage and see what he can do with this roster. And if playoffs isn't the bar, and it certainly shouldn't be, that's just completely unrealistic, but what qualifies as a success over the final stretch of the season for the for these Canucks? Yeah, I mean... Look, if I've I've sort of always thought of this team as an eighty-five to ninety-point baseline talent team, so a good Boudreaux effect I think would be to get them back performing in that range. Like for me, if you perform yeah. like an eighty-five to ninety-point team over the balance, that's good. That's you got them back to doing what they should have done. I think if he does more than that, and I know Canucks fans right now are hopeful that he will, if he does more than that with this roster, then that's a you know miracle. Yeah. For me, that's like, wow, Bruce Boudreaux, oh my goodness. You know, the greatest regular season coach of the last 10 years really is the greatest regular season coach of the last 10 years. Um, you know, I also think it's important that we do note that, by the way. Like, Boudreaux's not some guy. He's not just your classic retread. Oh, this guy washed out of the NHL and we hired him again. He <laughs> has an incredible coaching record in the regular season. Boudreaux is to the playoffs like a magnet is to the fridge. Yeah. Like, he just sticks there. He just gets there, and once he's there, he sticks. I mean, he actually falls off relatively yes. quickly, but whatever. The point is he's magnetized to making the playoffs. He has that in him as a as a attribute. This is not your average coaching hire. And, and so, look, if you're a Canucks fan that wants to have fun and, and hopefully watch your team play some entertaining hockey and, and win some games and maybe get back in the playoff race, like, this is the hire for you, for sure. For sure. Um, so if he does better than 85 to 90 points, I think that would be 
a miracle. That would be like, wow, incredible. Now, what I'd expect is that he gets the team back to 85 to 90 points as a pace. Yes. As a pace. Right. Not not Not, not what they'll finish with. Because if but, you go yeah. to 85, 90 point pace the rest of the way, you're still a 75 point team. And, and guess what? Probably still having top five lottery odds. Yep. That's just the hole that this club has dug for itself. So, you know, assuming no significant roster changes between now and then, 85 to 90 point pace, that's what that's what I'd be expecting from Boudreaux. And I'm expecting maybe on, on the higher end because I do think there's going to be a Boudreaux effect. I don't think it's going to be the effect that the Canucks are now a 37-17 team or something over the balance. Right. I'm not expecting a 63% point percentage from them over the over the rest of the season, like 108 point pace that gets them back into the thick of the playoff race or as Boudreaux put it the other day what picking up win the week win the week put up one pick up one point against the eighth place team in the west every week yeah until you're back in it like I'm uh, that's too high a bar yeah but I do think an 85 to 90 point team a team that looks something more like what we thought this team would look like going into the season um you know including the big guns firing I think that's a reasonable expectation well and I think you meant what you mentioned at the end there is key for me because you know, if they play at nine at ninety point pace for the remainder of the season, that's more than just a feather in the cap for Bruce Boudreaux, right? That's that's yes, it, it it is that for Boudreaux. He can look at it and say, "Hey, they were getting awful results under the previous coach. I came in, and all of a sudden they're playing like a decent team." But it's more than that because what that means, if you're playing at a ninety point pace, it means that a lot of your players who have underperformed so far are playing either at their true talent level or at least much closer. And that just gives you so much more flexibility when you're trying to make big decisions about your future, right? It removes so much of the uncertainty, which had started to creep in about some of your top players. If you do want to explore trading some people, well, they're playing better. So that makes it easier to make those trades, easier to drum up interest around the league. So it's the kind of thing you say, ah, like, who cares? If they play at a 90-point pace or they play at a 70-point pace, it's all the same. They're not making the playoffs. That's true, but just fundamentally for this team, getting those key players moving in the right direction. Fundamentally, drink. Shot of espresso. Oh man, is that the first time I've I've ripped off fundamentally? No, you from did you? it. You did it in the last show, and I mimed to you taking oh, a drink, man. and, and then you looked at me like I you looked at me cross eyed, <laughs> having no idea what I was gesturing. I to. was like, Dranzer, it's eleven thirty. What dropped, are you talking about? <laughs> you've dropped a fundamentally on consecutive shows, and oh, I think I've avoided it. So, oh my goodness, I, <laughs> talk about upsets. Talk about improbabilities. Maybe there's something to Boudreaux. It's tough times. <laughs> it's tough times <laughs> over here. But that that all counts. Getting those performances from your top players back, that that makes a big difference for this team in the future. The other thing that I find interesting, and this came up in the context of uh, Quinn Hughes talking actually about Elias Pettersson getting penalty kill time. And we played the clip a few times on the station yesterday. We won't play it again. But basically what Quinn Hughes said is, you know, I think for Pettersson, having that trust from a coach makes a big difference, right? That trust from your coaching staff is so important, not just for Pedersen, but for all players. That was the gist of what Quinn Hughes had to say. And I do wonder if even beyond the on-ice results for Boudreaux, a, a massive part of what the Canucks should be hoping he can accomplish in the remainder of the season is just starting to rebuild that trust, starting to rebuild that relationship with some of the key players on this team, right? Because, Drancer, you and I have talked a lot on this show about how that trust and that confidence from the players to the overall organization, how much that's been frayed and how kind of damaging some of the events of the last year plus have been to that relationship. And, 
you know, I think if if Boudreaux can start to rebuild that trust, you'll see the results on the ice as well. But if he can do anything he can do to just start getting the players believing in the franchise, believing in the organization again, I think that's just as key for the on as the on ice results for Boudreaux. There's no question in a bit in the big picture, right? That that's and I think that's a big part of the impetus here, right? Hundred percent is you needed to create an evaluative environment that allow you to make determinations on big stuff like what does Besser's next contract look like, right? Like, you know what what can they count on from Elias Pettersson, right? Yeah. Do how how hard should they go? in opening extension talks with Bo Horvat or or and or JT Miller this summer um you know how much help do they need on the blue line how much how much detonation do you have to do to this roster and by the way as much as i think it's important to wait and and 15 games before making those decisions maybe 25 games um i don't think there's a ton of suspense like this you're never going to win big in this league with this blue line yeah. Already, already yesterday, Bradshaw, you know, who who was sort of marginalized in his Canucks tenure to this point, right? He didn't really have a portfolio. Like, he came in with an associate coach's portfolio, but didn't end up really doing that work. Yeah. So, Bradshaw's now running the defense. And in his very first full practice, the team's working on high flippy with all their right side defenders. High flippy, for those that uh, don't understand it necessarily, is literally just flip the puck out. Up the gla- off the glass and out. Not even off the glass. <laughs> Just sky it. Just sky it down the ice like Campoli tried to do in 2011 just to bring it all back to 11 years ago because that's the theme of this show. Um, you know, that's a pretty damning assessment from a coach who's been uh, up close and personal with these players. You know, that he's finally in charge and he's like, hey, guys, instead of, like, making passes. Yeah, that's, not, that's not what you do. <laughs> Let's make sure we're good going high flippy. Let's work on the Hail Mary play. Um, you know, and and that also suggests another thing, right? Which is there's a style of hockey. And Jim Rutherford, who is being linked sort of obliquely to the Canucks job. The the club is definitely at least doing some due diligence there, as they should, considering he's won three cups <laughs> across 25 years in this league. Um, you know, they... His Pittsburgh Penguins teams under Mike Sullivan, former Vancouver Canucks assistant, actually former Vancouver Canucks interim head coach, Yes. now that I think about it, um, they won playing a style that that you know I like to call punt, punt and hunt, which is your defenders aren't good, but your forwards are. So if all else fails, just put it in the neutral zone and have forwards skating and checking at speed in the neutral zone, create the pressure to create a breakout effectively, right? Like you don't have to break out in a classic Jacques Martin or Mark Crawford set. You don't need to be the Anaheim or the Anaheim, the mighty ducks, like the flying V down the ice with a set play breakout. You you can just sort of create a breakout with enough chaos, with enough work. Maybe that's something that the Canucks are poised to try here. Boudreaux has said that he's going to try implementing new stuff in the neutral zone Based on the high flippy, based on some of what we saw at practice, I wonder if he's looked at this roster and thought, let's try and punt and hunt a bit. But here's the problem. If you're going to punt and hunt successfully, you need a lot of puck winners. You need guys who win the puck with speed in the neutral zone, and the Canucks don't have that personnel, in in my opinion. So, you know, again, I do think that Boudreaux is going to come up against the limitations of this roster, but I'm massively eager to see see him try and solve some of these problems 
And look, that eagerness, that's a massive relief, even for me. I, I can't imagine for someone as emotionally invested yes. as fans of this team, they must be just so excited. Well, and that's the thing, new ideas. We we pretty much knew what Travis Green's ideas were. And full credit to Travis Green, he was still trying things at least, not necessarily in terms of tactics and systems, but I look at the Elias Pettersson skate on game day before the Montreal game as an example, right? He was still trying things to get better results. And that's a credit because it's not easy to do when you're in the circumstances he was. But look, Bruce Boudreaux has a whole bunch of new ideas, a whole bunch of different ideas. And he has a long runway now to try those out, to see which ones will work with this roster, to see which ones, you know, might work with the star players, but then they're going to need different players to support those ideas farther down the roster. That's, it's tremendously exciting. I also just think it's tremendously valuable to have somebody with those new ideas. As you said, Brad Shaw gets to introduce some of his ideas. We know how well-regarded he is around the league as well. So all of a sudden you have this chance with Scott Walker coming in too, to try out a bunch of different things, see what's real, see what's valuable, see what you can build on going forward forward with this team. And that's really ultimately going to be the bar of success more than just on ice results is how many questions can you answer about the future of this team? How many solutions can you figure out in the final 50 plus games of the season? Now we mentioned it off the top, but yes, Mike Gillis's name is in the news. Lawrence Gilman's name is in the news. We will talk about that. Is it real? Would it be a good idea for them to return? All of that and more plus your text. It's the Canucks hour Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. And 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And the texts are starting to roll in, Drancer, because we said uh, one of the magic names in the Vancouver market, which is guaranteed to get a reaction, to get listener interaction. And it's not Brad Marchand. To get texts. It's not Brad Marchand. It's surprisingly uh, enough. It, it's not Jake Vertanen, because that used to be one of the uh, magic words in this market that would get that reaction. Yikes. It was Mike Gillis. Yeah, that one will always do it. This one will always do it. And let's just, let's give a little bit of the context before we dive in here, because I I know there are, you know, there are people who still hold Mike Gillis in such high regard here, but when they hear his name in any connection to the Canucks, they immediately jump to, oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. It's happening. So let's just put it in proper context here, all right? Which is that I think the most interesting thing might be that Nobody with the Canucks and no insider has ever said it's off the table. It's not happening, right? Everything we've heard about this Canucks GM search is they're casting a wide net. They're doing their due diligence on basically every possible candidate. The line from Elliot Friedman in 32 Thoughts today was, if you think of a name, they've looked into them. Now, Friedman himself didn't specifically mention either Mike Gillis or Lawrence Gilman. He did say... They've done their due diligence on Jim Rutherford, which you were able to confirm in our first segment, Drancer. But as you mentioned, your athletic colleague, Pierre Lebrun, yesterday did bring up specifically Mike Gillis and Lawrence Gilman 
in connection to the Canucks front office search. Well, and Francesco Aquilini was asked about a president and GM tandem and went on a description that, you know, look, it could have been Mark Bergevin and Scott Mellenby, yep. but also would seem to match, right, the description for that. And then he was asked specifically, Francesco was by Post Media's Patrick Johnston, about the possibility of a retread. And as Stan Smeal smiled very coyly, very coyly, uh, Francesco, you know, said, look, nothing's off the table. Yep. Reiterated that nothing's off the table. And I think those combination of facts has caused Mike Gillis battle round 19 to, <laughs> to begin to play out in my Twitter mentions <laughs> as, as, as I've gone to um, battle on Twitter with Mark Spector. And I, I just want to note one thing about Mark Spector. Mark Spector is the best. Like, one of my favorite people, period. Great guy. Um, great guy. The best guy. Uh, but a lot of fun to spar with on Twitter, mostly, because, you know, I, look, I think a fundamental disagreement over Mike Gillis's legacy with Vancouver, with the Canucks, comes down to a misunderstanding or a misweighting uh, in, in drafting versus all the other stuff that goes into team building, yeah. right? And I look at the Anaheim Ducks as the, exa- as the best example ever of this. Is over the last 15 years, no team has done better at the draft table or in player development than the Anaheim Ducks. And where has it got them? Like nowhere, not even to a cup final other than in, not in the last 15 years anyway, because, you know, William Carlson, you might draft a first line caliber center in the second round, but if you trade him for five games of James Wisniewski, it doesn't matter, right? Finding Shea Theodore late in the first round is a home run pick. But it doesn't matter if you trade him to a division rival so that you can keep Kevin Bieksa and offload Clayton Stoner's contract. Like, it doesn't matter. So, you know, the fact of the matter is is that I wait. Like, I think the hardest thing to do is to turn great pieces into a great team, especially in the hard cap era, because you need to lock them up to the right price, right? That's a crucial part. Yeah. In fact, there's nothing more important as the Boston Bruins roll into town there's nothing more important than getting your best player done at a cap number that pushes everyone else down under them, as the Bruins did with Patrice Bergeron, and then you get Marchand done cheap, and then you get Pasternak done cheap, and then you get McAvoy done cheaper than many would have expected on his third contract, and the the benefits pool forever. The Tampa Bay Lightning, a perfect example. You get Hedman done at, is it 8-5? Get Hedman done at 8-5, and then everyone else has to fall in the line. And the opposite is true. If you overpay guys, and and the Canucks have obviously done this for years, but we see examples littered across the roster. Tanner Pearson at 3.2. Why does Tanner Pearson get to 3.2? It's because how do you pay Tanner Pearson, who's playing top six minutes for your team, fourth and forward ice time uh, last season when when they're in contract talks, less than Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel, who are not playing. And by the way, the Canucks are going to run into this again with Tyler Mott. Do you know how – do you know – who, which Canucks player Tyler Mott has scored the exact same number of goals as in 30 fewer games over the course of the last two, three years? Who? Jason Dickinson. Yes. What's Jason Dickinson's cap number? 2.9. So, at six, isn't it? I think it's 2.6. Yes. So, so where do you think Tyler Mott's negotiations begin at? Do you ever win a cup with Tyler Mott at 2.6, right? The, the hardest part is doing that. And then, once you've created that space, creatively building depth in and around those pieces under a hard cap system, right? And so, the 
Gillis detractors love to point to the 2011 team and the core that was inherited. Luongo was acquired by Dave Nonis, a home run trade. Yep. The Sedins were drafted by Brian Burke, probably the most impressive piece of GMing in Vancouver Canucks history. Ryan Kessler, also drafted by um, Brian Burke's regime, Edler by Dave Nonis's regime, on and on. And then they point out that the drafting was bad over six years. And that is also not debatable. It was nowhere near good accurate. enough. 100%, 100% accurate. accurate. Yeah. You know, but the fact is, is that the hardest thing to do, like you can't over-prioritize bringing in good players because the best way to bring in good players is just to be bad. The Canucks have a lot of good players on their roster because they were bad for so long. Uh, Hughes, Patterson, Pod Colson. Um, you know, even Hoaglander is a second round pick, but that's the 40th overall pick. That's a high second because the Canucks were bad, right? The trick is to re-sign those guys at a level that allows you to build a contending team around them and then actually going out and doing it, building a world-class blue line or a top five blue line, you know, off of salary dumps and, and with player friendly or team friendly deals in free agency. Like that's the hardest thing to do. Look at Edmonton. Look at all the teams that have great players and don't build great teams well look at all the teams that have drafted a lot high and accumulated a lot of talent and never found a way to turn that into anything right there's an endless litany of it anyone can draft high all you have to do is be bad be bad at your job you get to draft high um draft high and more often than not you will find a good player yes sometimes you might get your levy or vertanen uh but more often than not. But if not, you do it in bulk, if you do it six or seven times in a in seven, seven or eight years, year period, yeah, yes, you're, you're going to end up with good players. You're going to end up with a Bud Colson and a Hughes and a Pedersen, yeah. right? Like, that's going to happen. So, you know, for me, I just don't over-prioritize it. I think the toughest part in the cap system is navigating everything. And, and you know, then there's this idea that the cupboards were so bare when Trevor Linden and Jim Benning took over that this struggle was inevitable. And it was, to some extent. Transitioning from the 2011 core was going to require some pain. But it didn't require eight years of pain. No. It didn't require being 26th in the NHL for eight seasons. Like, that is not inevitable by any means. You have to be able to turn around. And and there's also a difference between being asset... Like, there's a difference between having a bad prospect pipeline and being asset poor. And the Canucks were not asset poor, right? Benning ended up inheriting two top pair quality defenders in Edler and Tanev, who played major minutes. Like, honestly, did Yeomans work for this franchise for years while the team was in the absolute gutter and then left with no value being netted? Like, what was the point of that? I mean, you know, I have more respect for those two gentlemen than I have for just about anyone I've ever worked for, like, with in this league or covered. And, you know, like, what was the point? What was the point of Chris Tanev blocking, you know, 15% of all shots taken for those teams? Like, you have to get something for them. Uh, Kessler was turned into Bonino and a first-round pick, which is good, until you turn Bonino and, and into Lucas Sutter. Pisa. And in Yeah, and McCann, in, or McCann into Good Branson, right? The Bieksa pick, Bieksa for a second, that's a good trade until you use that second to get Brandon Sutter. Yeah. Like, that team, there was a, so much talent that was inherited. It was just all on the roster. And it was aging, and it wasn't capitalized off of. And that, to me, is why the empty cupboards thing is actually a lie. It's not that there was nothing inherited. It's that nothing was done with what was inherited. If you make five trades with some discipline, like the like the Luongo trade, which brought in Jacob Markstrom, and the Schneider trade, which brought in Bo Horvat, yeah. if you make five trades like that, 
you're not one of the worst teams in the league over an eight-year stretch. Or I will even say, Drancer, if you then go out and spend those, like, as you mentioned, turning a pick into Sutter, turning a pick into Gabranson, if you can spend those picks on young veteran players, which those guys were at the time, as long as it's the right ones, right? Like, that would have been a valid course as well. To go forward and say, hey, we're trying totally. to get the most out of the veteran players, out of Tana, of Edler, of the Sedins that we still have on the team. That was a, That's a totally valid way to try to build your team. They just didn't identify the right guys. Totally. But they had the assets to go out and acquire players like that. Just did the wrong ones. It wasn't because they didn't have anything to work with. It's because, as you say, what they did have to work with, they didn't make the most out of it, and that's why it stretched on for so long without any forward progress here. And and I just want to I just want to bring this back. Like I'm not saying that Gillis is the right guy for this moment, but what Gillis is is a, is a great white shark. Like he is a shark in this business, uh, a sharp guy who's had success at a, at a bunch of levels. And if the Canucks decide to look at him, like I think that's sensible because I don't think there's a ton of really credible presidential candidates out there to be totally honest with you like I think Jim Rutherford's one of them yeah but there's not a lot of people that match that description to be totally honest with you right and as that name surfaces and the legacy gets debated you know one thing I think we need to come back to is like the the basic genesis of Vancouver hockey right and here's the thing about this this market this fan base this franchise right In a lot of ways, Vancouver doesn't share the same hockey values that the cold prairie towns and and, and upper Canada do, right? This is a different hockey market. We know that from how this team is covered, how this team is talked about, the way that fans care about this team. Um, Also, you know, historically, right, like Toronto blocked the Canucks' first effort at expanding (laughs) the Maple Leafs, literally, Conn Smythe, because, because the city of Vancouver rejected in a in a plebiscite in like 1967 his pitch to buy a bunch of downtown land for nothing um he blocked the Canucks first expansion bid and then by the time the Canucks came in it was like a double the fee they price gouged basically the first group of Vancouver owners which which caused you know the likes of Coley Hall and sort of the founding fathers of the Canucks to get into bed with um, you know, a Minnesota-based owner named Tom Scallon who ended up embezzling funds from the team. Uh, like, the very genesis of this franchise's history is in opposition to the interests of the NHL. Um, the expansion process was brutal. Like, in, like this yep. team was basically cast in the darkness for 20 years, and that was by design. Um, and then over the last 15 years, right, the Canucks have played phenomenal f- f- hockey in the early part of that sort of 15 years. Well, even span. stretch it back to the, the turn yeah, of the millennium, right? With totally. the West Coast Express era, right? Yeah. So, but but the brightest, the golden era of Vancouver Canucks hockey, they were the most criticized team that this team, that this city has ever seen, right? By a lot. Like when the Canucks were winning, everyone hated it because no one has Vancouver's best interests at heart in this league, in this industry. No one cares. Like Vancouver is on an island. Canadian, not American, not Western American, a tr- not a traditional hockey market, but a robust Western one with a totally different viewpoint and set of values around the game than what you see in the rest of Canada. Like Vancouver's on an island. It's a different place. And no one's had this this city's best interests at heart hockey-wise. And when this team was good, it was roundly criticized. And then when fans criticized this team while it was clearly on the road to disaster during the Benning era, 
you know, fans in this market were told that, in fact, things were fine and they just didn't understand it. And this was all inevitable because of how morally bankrupt and structurally bankrupt the best team in franchise history was. And and it's just a little much. Like now, now as this team looks to chart a new direction and Gillis's name gets bandied about, the important thing in identifying a key hockey operations leader is like, find someone willing to be in opposition to the interests of the NHL. Winning in the NHL requires you to vouch for yourself because the NHL is not going to look after you. They're going to give you unprecedented suspensions in the Stanley Cup final. They're going to give you unprecedented financial penalties for a contract that was legal at the time, right? Like, you have to be willing to rep this city and be a shark. Like, more than anything, what this city needs is a shark. And if Gillis's name ends up being the one, and I don't think it will be. I think that's an extreme long shot considering yes. all of the the history. But that's the type of personality that I that I think matters more than anything else. Like find someone who's willing to go to bat for this franchise in this city, not someone who's going to be glad handing and looking for their next gig in the industry. Find find someone different because you're never going to win in this market trying to do things the same way. You have to find someone who's gonna be like a uh a contestant on The Bachelor, right? Not here to make friends. Not here to make friends. <laughs> we don't we don't, don't need a president who's here to make friends. No. Absolutely no. not. Um, my take on the Mike Gillis fascination and with the potential of him returning, and I agree with you, it feels like a, an extreme long shot. I think the Lawrence Gilman possibility is much more realistic and would be interesting as well. But for me with Gillis, I think Gillis would probably do a really good job as the president of hockey operations in Vancouver. I think he had a really impressive track record in his first go around in this city. From what I've heard, you know, he's been on this station on a, on a couple of occasions from some of his other interviews. He seems like he has thought a lot about how to improve what an NHL front office should be. I, I think he would do a good job. I also don't think he's the only possible candidate who would do a really good job. And that's where the confusion comes in for me sometimes is the singular focus from some people on it has to be Mike Gillis. He's the only person who would make sense for this job. Totally credible candidate would probably be a really good uh, person for the job, but I don't see him as the singular one true candidate to lead the Canucks back to glory. I get there's a a narrative sense to it, right? Hey, he was cast out after falling short. Then he gets to come back and, and finish the job. I understand the attraction of that, but there are other people who don't have the same ties. I will say the thing with the drafting, and we had people text in as soon as we started talking about this, right? Like, hey, look look at his draft. And as soon as you go back and look at his draft record, uh, you'll give your head a shake and vow to never utter his name again. Look at the last two years, though. But also, I think the whole idea of you just look at draft history for franchises as a whole. You can't look at a five-year span and say that team's great at drafting; they'll be great at drafting forever. Or this team sucks at drafting; they'll be and they'll suck at drafting forever. The draft is a massive crapshoot, like a massive crapshoot. There, yes, there are teams that are better at it and worse at it. But this idea that his draft record in his first go around that proves he's a bad drafter. First of all. You can change your strategies, you can evolve, you can develop, you can recognize your mistakes. But man, there's still a lot of luck to the draft. There's still an awful lot of luck to the draft. And we we saw the opposite with Jim Benning, right? Oh, hey, he's going to be a drafting guru. Had some nice picks, but it's not as if the Canucks all of a sudden became the best drafting team in the league or anything. It's It's really hard to sustain one type of performance in the draft over a period of 10, 15, 20 years. You just don't see it because, as I said, it's a massive crapshoot. 
look at the Tampa Bay Lightning and how many first-round picks they've lit on fire. Do you know what team is quietly pretty bad at drafting? The Boston Bruins. How much well, success? Fam- famously, in the one instance. Well, but but I mean, yes. all, all up and down. I mean, they've they've identified some talent, but like their their success isn't based on their their sustained success has something to do with McAvoy and Pasternak and you know getting Brandon Carlo in the second round. Sure, for sure. But the most important thing that keeps the Bruins good year after year is actually the self-fulfilling nature of being good year after year well, in a city that people want to live in and a hockey market that people want to play for. Like, it's about getting guys like Charlie Coyle and Taylor Hall to stay at below market value. It's about having college free agents pick you all the time so that you get, you know, a steady stream of guys like Donato that you then monetize. Like, it's, it's not that they're the best drafting team that allows them to sustain success. Tampa Bay Lightning, same thing. It's, it's about... You know, they had Hedman and Stamkos, and they've done well in later rounds to find guys like Point and Sorelli, undrafted free agents like Yan Gord, right? I mean, they're, they're, but their success is mostly based off of ruthless cap allocation. Ru- like, they're the best negotiating team in the league, and then they do well in the draft. It's not that they're the best drafting team. They still have a ton of misses. Yeah. It's that they're smart in how they price out and manage their players, and how they utilize the fact that people want to stay in the sun, want to stay in a low-tax state, right? It, like, there's so many different ways to have success. The, there's no there's no defending Mike Gillis's draft record beyond saying that, you know, it's bad. Like, it's not yes, good it's enough. Yes, it's bad. It was it's very not good bad. Enough. It, but the point, isn't, the point isn't that the draft is not everything. The draft, in fact, is a small part of winning. It's a small part of how you build a su- successful organization in the NHL. The the m- much more important things are strategically how you go about identifying and taking advantage of your strengths, how you manage your players, how you create a winning atmosphere, how you maximize what you get from the talent on your roster. And those are the areas that Mike Gillis, the Mike Gillis era excelled. Um, you know, but but yeah, there's no there's no doubt it wasn't perfect. Yeah. No and no one's saying that. No one should be saying that. Uh, Stewie texted in, Detroit, for 20-plus years, were great at drafting mid-rounds and landing great players late. Your theory is flawed. You can be good at the draft. You're talking about, like, three players in Detroit's how, how, case. How's it gone since? And exactly. And then what happened? How's, and then what happened? If they, if that was a repeatable skill that they could find, you know, Zetterberg, Datsuks, and Lidstrom's repeatedly in the late rounds of the drafts, why did they stop doing it? Because guess what? They stopped doing it. Because there's an element of luck to finding those players in the late rounds of the draft. Correct. Full credit to the scouts who identified those guys. I'm not saying it was there was no skill involved, but the idea that one person or one team is going to ace the draft consistently over a period of 10, 15, 20 years, it doesn't happen in the NHL. It doesn't happen in any sport there are ever. S- there are smart scouts like Martin Madden Jr., who may be a candidate in, in Montreal, um, You know Al Murray in Tampa Bay, uh, Judd Brackett in Minnesota, formerly in Vancouver. Um, I mean, there are scouts that do, I think, a really good job. And I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's all dumb luck and it's all random. No, no, it's I know not. you're not. But the idea that you're going to, okay, you have a good drafter and, and therefore you're going to find great players in the but, fifth and sixth round every year. No, you're not. Here's the thing. I just named three guys to you that I think do a durably good job. Hackan Anderson would be the guy in Detroit too, right? Sure. Um, Yari Kekalainen in Florida uh, has done really well out of Finland. Um, that's of course Yarmo Kekalainen's brother, and I think Yarmo Kekalainen's uh, an incredible scout. And and you know I think that the Columbus Blue Jackets have done a really good job drafting over the course of the past ten years. So I've I've given you some examples. Now 
here's the thing that's important to note. Other than Yarmo Kekalainen, are any of those guys GMs? GMs? No. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, the draft matters, but you can hire people to run it for you. That's not what an, that's not what you need from an executive in a hard cap system. What you need from a top hockey operations executive is to lead an organization, communicate with the public, address and and evaluate ruthlessly internally, and direct resources while managing up to make sure that those resources are maximized in terms of their impact and volume. And that's what the Canucks need in a top executive. You don't need a super scout because, in fact, a super scout is unlikely to have the strategic insight you need to build a winning team. And that's how you get to, sure, you you made some good picks, but you also ran at a pick deficit while spending to the cap for a team that was 26th in the NHL in point percentage over seven and a half years and now has no good options. Find a leader, not a scout. And whether it's Mike Gillis, who, as we both agree, is a major long shot, or somebody else, the point is good. If somebody is brought in as a president of hockey operations for this team, the instant reaction is going to be, okay, pour over the transactions they've been a part of as GM. Pour over the draft picks they've been a part of as GM. That stuff matters. It, it does matter. But as you said, more important is the ability to set the direction, the ability to manage everyone else in the front office. Those are going to be the things that really determine whoever the next top executive is, how much success they're going to be able to have with this franchise. That is going to do it for us. Yeah, we did it. We talked about Mike Gillis. You know everyone wanted to hear it. Everyone's fired up. The Canucks play the Bruins tonight at 6 o'clock. Again, early puck drop, 6 o'clock. Pre-game show gets going at 4 here on Sportsnet 650 with the People Show. Satin Bick, have your intermission and post-game coverage. That's going to do it for us. We'll be back tomorrow, 11 a.m. It's the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650.